Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Investing has always been about using information to gain an edge. But in the information age, more and more decisions are handed to the machines. In America, funds run by computers account for two-thirds of stock trades. And that comes with risks. And centuries ago, the naughtiest words were religious slurs. More recently, the sweariest insults had to do with body parts or bodily functions. These days, those seem fairly tame, and political polarization is opening a new dictionary of discourtesy. But first... Since taking office in 2018, South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has faced a difficult task cleaning up the mess made by his own party, the African National Congress, or ANC. The ANC is Nelson Mandela's liberation movement-turned-party, which has been in power since the end of apartheid. The country is in dire straits following the nine-year presidency of Mr. Ramaphosa's predecessor, Jacob Zuma. Under Jacob Zuma's presidency, corruption was unrestrained. Robert Guest is our foreign editor. Crooks took over many of the most important posts in government, and in the state-owned industries, and used their power to loot it and to rob the public blind. The predictable result of this was that public services got dramatically worse, capital fled the country, business stagnated, and people's livelihoods got worse. Mr Ramaphosa has pledged reforms. We are committed to building an ethical state in which there is no place for corruption, patronage, rent-seeking, and the plundering of public money. But after 20 months in office, he can seem keener to talk about reform than to enact it. The kleptocratic elites who ransacked the state when Mr. Zuma was in office have not yet been prosecuted. Robert Guest and our Africa correspondent, John McDermott, recently met the South African president and asked him why. Mr. Ramaphosa replied with a scene from a rip-roaring Second World War film. He invoked an image from the film Force 10 from Navarone. And I know people are so impatient. It forever reminds me, I don't know if you've ever been into movie watching. I used to... There's a bit where commandos want to blow up a dam in order to sweep away a bridge that the Nazis want to use. And they set off the explosives. Nothing happens, and they get very upset because it hasn't worked. It didn't work! I know it didn't work! And the explosives expert says, don't worry. Can't expect an enormous volcano with three tiny bags of explosives. Give it time, it'll work. 
And of course, he turns out to be right. And Ramaphosa says that his reforms are like this. And I say it is irrevocable. What has happened in our country does need follow-up and there has to be accountability and it is going to happen. The challenge is that people want it yesterday. You can't see them because they're operating inside the institutions, but there will be results. Just wait. And is that a satisfying answer in your book? It's a reasonable answer. I think people can be forgiven for being impatient. Mr. Ramaphosa is clearly honest. He's clearly trying to do the right things. But there is considerable urgency here. He has been described by foreign ambassadors as the last chance for South Africa. They're in a situation where the domestic investors have been somewhat calmed by him taking over from the awful president, Zuma. But we don't have other investors coming in. There hasn't been that level of confidence. Growth has been absolutely terrible. There's a package of reforms on the table drawn up by his own finance minister, which, if implemented properly, would at least double the growth rate from earlier predictions. And uh, it is very urgent that these things happen. Remember, President Ramaphosa is from the same party as President Zuma. He very narrowly won an intra-party motion to get rid of Zuma and replace him with him. And it is very possible that the other side could take over again. They have numbers. They have money. And they really like the way things were before because it was very good for them, even if it was terrible for the country. Well, what about other directions then? What's in the proposal then from the finance minister? The finance ministry's proposals are reasonably ambitious and yet doable. It consists of things of easing the visa rules for skilled migrants so you can actually get talented people in the country. At the moment, it's unbelievably difficult. Breaking up or privatizing parts of the power company to make it actually function properly. There's also stuff about enhancing education standards, improving property rights for the poor, and generally injecting you know, a little bit more competition into the market, lowering entry requirements for small businesses, that kind of thing. So it's a series of sensible reforms that would gin up growth a little bit. And the country just desperately needs to start growing because it has a horrific unemployment rate, the highest official unemployment in the world at 29%. And that doesn't include all the people who've given up looking for work because they're so discouraged. And so is Mr. Ramposa on board with those suggestions? Does he back those proposals? The answer is yes, but with qualifications. He said that he endorsed all of the proposals in the documents. I endorse all of them. I endorse them because they are the type of uh, proposals that are going to uh, boost the economic fortunes of our country. But then he added a little rider. And of course, you can't implement all of them at one go. Mm -hmm. You could read it as a statement of the obvious. Obviously, you can't do all these things immediately. But equally, it does sound a little bit like timidity. And what about the question of how realistic these reforms are? Can he carry them out regardless of timescale? It's very difficult. Almost any important reform he tries is going to involve inflicting some pain on his allies. And that's hard. So, for example, with education... In order to make schools better, you have to get rid of the bad teachers and bring in good ones. Well, the bad teachers are all protected by the labor unions, and the labor unions are his allies. It's an extremely difficult process. He likened it to if you have an infected toe when you have diabetes. In the end, if they say your toe is either so bad, it's rotten, and you say, no, I don't want my toe to be amputated. Then they... Actually, you have to cut the toe off now, otherwise it might spread and your whole life could be, you know, at risk, then you've got to make choices. That's quite a brutal thing to say about some of your allies, but, you know, it's pain now or more pain later. Well, you say pain now. Did, did you ask him when this might happen? 
John McDermott, our Africa correspondent, asked him exactly that. Dr. Ramaphosa, when are you going to operate? (laughs) (laughs) He slightly changed the subject, referring to the calls that he gets to when are you going to start arresting people for corruption. He pointed out correctly that it's not his job to arrest people for corruption. It's his job to put in place the institutions that cause them to be arrested. So aside from the sort of point-by-point policy analysis, what was your impression of Mr. Ramaphosa as a leader, as a man, as the person who can turn things around for South Africa? He's an impressive guy. He's very charming. He has a long history of getting people to agree with him. I mean, this is one of the guys most responsible for negotiating with the old all-white regime the end of apartheid. He got them to negotiate themselves out of office. So don't underestimate him. He's the only person I can think of who could plausibly push the African National Congress, the ruling party, off the disastrous path that it was on and onto a path of competence and honesty. But it's not yet clear that he's treating the task with enough urgency to get it done as quickly as it needs to be done. What if he doesn't? What if he runs out of time? If he can't show results within sort of one electoral cycle, so if he can't put South Africa back on a growth path, which always takes time, then someone else is going to win elections, and that someone is almost certainly going to be worse. The forces vying to take over within his party are the populists, the far left, and the crooks, the people who would like power in order to steal money. And if those guys get back in, and remember, they will promise absolutely anything in order to get elected, if those guys take over, then South Africa's really in trouble. Robert, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In May 2010, a trillion-dollar stock market crash hit in America. In just a matter of minutes, more than 5% was wiped off the value of the S&P 500 index. The alarm spread quickly through the media and was palpable in coverage by CNBC. They are ping-ponging back off each other. People are seeing this, and those memories of fear are coming back. Trading at 60. What the heck is going on down here? Uh, I don't know. All of a sudden here, we started hearing screaming, bye, bye, bye. The panic didn't last long, and the market stabilized. But many blamed this flash crash and subsequent ones on algorithmic trading. And it raised huge questions about the role of machines in investing. Investors have always tried to glean market-moving information before their competitors get hold of it. The Rothschild family supposedly owes much of its fortune to a carrier pigeon. It brought news of the French defeat at the Battle of Waterloo faster than ships did. But if information is the lifeblood of markets, then investing is being transformed by the information age. Today, funds run by computers account for more than a third of America's stock market and nearly two-thirds of trading activity. 
Although these machines follow investing strategies set by humans, a new phase is beginning. Artificial intelligence programs are now writing their own rules in ways their human masters don't fully understand. Half a century ago, things looked very different. If you think about the process that investment actually is, you're trying to make a prediction about which companies will do well in the future. Alice Fullwood is our US finance correspondent. 30, 50 years ago, you'd have to order hard copies of companies' annual reports. You'd have to go and meet the CEOs. They call it kicking the tires, where you'd go and sort of kick the tires of tractors in the inventory yards of Caterpillar or other big construction companies. And then you'd put those trades on. You'd give your slip to buy your share to some errand boy who would run it across to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where it would be executed by human beings shouting and hand-signaling at one another. A wave of selling that sent the 2,000 men on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange scurrying from phone to trader to phone again, trying to keep up with sell orders. Since the 1970s, the process of investing has become increasingly automated. So the first sort of automated strategy that you can think of is probably the index fund. And that's very simple. You just buy an equal weight of everything in the index. And that was founded in 1975. And then you started to get quant funds in the middle of the 1970s, uh, investors that use a lot of quantitative methods. And they basically decided that there was enough information out there that they wanted to use machines to process that information. And you started to see cheaper copies of those types of strategies. And this was when sort of exchange traded funds were invented in the 90s. And those exchange traded funds would take the type of strategies that quant funds had initially used and make them available at a very low cost to sort of your average investor. So today you have an abundance of index funds and exchange-traded funds, all trading automatic strategies. And then at the cutting edge, the quant funds are still pushing further using things like machine learning and AI. So if you talk to some of the quant investors like David Siegel, who co-founded and currently co-chairs Two Sigma, one of the biggest quant funds in the world, he talks about the new processes that people are using today to analyze all of this information. You know, in the old days, the best investment managers were the ones that, you know, had maybe the best intuition. And today it seems to be shifting in a direction where the best investment managers are the ones who can highly effectively use data and analysis tools like machine learning and increasingly going to approaches that are heavily automated. So it seems like through the history of this stuff, the abilities of the machines have driven new products, new techniques. I mean, as AI and machine learning kind of come into the formula now, where, where do you see this going? To understand the difference between what machines can do now versus what they did when the quant funds were first getting set up, a useful analogy is to look at chess. So in 1997, Deep Blue, uh, which was a computer that was built by IBM, beat Garry Kasparov, the reigning world champion at chess for the first time. And this was sort of hailed at the time as a triumph of machines over man. But it was only up to a point because Deep Blue was trained using human rules. So how humans thought the best way to play chess was, and it just played that game much, much better than human beings could. Jump to 2017, uh, Google unveiled AlphaZero, their AI chess computer, and all they did there was give it the rules of chess and then allow it to teach itself how to play by playing against itself over and over again. And it took four hours of training for it to be able to beat the sort of leading human-led computer called Stockfish. And when it played against Stockfish, it did things that looked like blunders to human eyes. So, for example, it sacrificed a sort of bishop and it turned out to be a very subtle strategic play that only paid off many, many moves later. And so this idea that 
if you let the sort of machines figure out the strategies for themselves, that they'll do things that look strange to human eyes and that human beings don't quite understand. That sort of logic is underpinning some of the strategies that the most cutting-edge quant funds are doing now. So they're allowing computers to come up with their own strategies or their own factors, and they don't really understand what they are yet, uh, but they trust that the computer knows what it's doing. Do you envision a future in which humans are kind of out of this whole loop altogether? I don't think so, or at the very least, that's sort of a long way off yet. Humans are still involved in the process, so they have to pick the data that their algorithms are trained on. Um, at the same time, you kind of still have to teach them the rules, but machines are doing things that look distinctly unhuman. So just as AlphaZero sacrificed that bishop, the machines are identifying factors that often look different from anything that we see conducted by humans. And if the general trend here is for ever greater involvement of the machines, how do the people feel about it? Lots of people are cautious. Some are even sort of outright sceptical that these machines are doing anything meaningful. For example, Ray Dalio, uh, who founded the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater. When I interviewed him, he definitely was sceptical. I believe that the human mind is vastly inferior to the computer in processing information. However, the computer is still vastly inferior to the human mind in reasoning and inventing things. He points out that it's not like chess because in chess, the rules stay the same, whereas markets evolve and strategies that worked in the past will no longer work because people will figure them out. If somebody discovers what you've discovered or the marketplace as a whole has discovered it, not only is it worthless, but it becomes over-discounted and it'll produce losses. But if these techniques and these bits of code essentially are seen as a little tiny bit of an advantage, that's all that it takes. They're going to spread. Does, does that come with some risk? So there are plenty of risks that people point to about machines taking over market broadly. One fear is that, you know, if you have these machines trading off against each other, that might lead to more frequent and sudden shocks to market share prices. Of particular concern are flash crashes. And there are a few recent examples of these. In 2010, the S&P dropped 5% in a few minutes. Um, in 2014, bond prices sharply spiked again in a matter of minutes. People point to machines possibly being the source of this for a few reasons. Maybe the strategies are incompatible or too volatile. And the other one is that, you know, now that machines also do all of the trade execution, perhaps there's less liquidity in markets or less consistent liquidity so that when prices do start moving, they sort of move more suddenly. So, okay, there is a risk then that traders might lose their shirt. What about more broadly beyond the markets? How much does this trend matter? There are a few reasons that people more broadly should be concerned. One is that the shareholders of a company have historically been an important part of holding that company accountable. Uh, if all of its shareholders are machines now, what does that mean for corporate governance going forwards? And even more broadly, you know, the stock market is central to most modern economies. They match companies that need finance with investors who have spare savings, and they signal how well the economy is doing. And how they operate has sort of wide-reaching ramifications for financial stability. So this idea that algorithms possibly untethered from human decision-making are calling the shots really sort of wrestles with those questions of why the stock market matters. But at the same time, this idea that AI and machine learning are helping us figure out something that humans haven't known about stock markets, it's very exciting that we may learn more about how the stock market works. And by extension, that will reflect something about how the world works. Thank you very much for your time, Alice. Thank you so much, Jason. 
there are plenty of things you can't say on the radio, or rather, things you probably shouldn't say. Because as traditional insults and curses become more permissible in public forums, other words are taking on new barbed meanings. Let me just say at the outset that, for various reasons, we're going to use some euphemisms about some pretty sharp and pointed words. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. And we might get an explicit rating in various podcast stores and things like that, so you're not going to hear them on the air just now. In, in which case, let's just go right for the, the evident granddaddy of them all, the, the C word. What's, what's the view on the C word more broadly these days? For a lot of the last couple centuries, the C word was one of the most powerful, shocking words out there. It probably comes from something of a Victorian aversion to sex. Weirdly enough, seven, eight hundred years ago, you found this word in people's names and in street names. It was in medical textbooks, but it became one of the most radioactive swear words in more recent centuries. But it seems to be tapering off again as attitudes towards sex and the body are relaxing. And there are a couple recent incidents that really bring that out. Samantha B, a Canadian-American comedian, called Ivanka Trump the daughter of the president of the United States, the big C word on her show. It sort of sparked a brief-lived firestorm, but that kind of went away after a couple of days. 20 years ago, you just can't imagine someone using that word on television to describe a member of the president of the United States' family. Now we're seeing it come out. And, and historically, the shift of what's really most offensive and what sort of becomes offensive, this is a, this is a constant ebb and flow. Yes, these things have come in waves. So sort of five, six, seven, eight hundred years ago, by far the most taboo words were religious swears. And that didn't mean that those words weren't used. You had people swearing oaths by the body parts of Jesus, for example. And these were so shocking that in 1606, an English law actually banned profane references to religious sentiments and, and the deity and, and Jesus on stage. And so these, these disappear from Shakespeare's plays after that. Religious taboos declined slowly but surely over the course of the centuries, and then the words around the body and sex become the big ones in the sort of Victorian period. But sort of since the 1960s, what we're seeing is the tabooification increasingly of group-based sort of slurs, that it's not okay to call people nasty things based on some identity like their race, their sex, their sexual orientation, and things like that. So the most taboo word, I would argue, in the United States today, and I think most people would probably agree, is, is the N-word. But that word hasn't been in public discourse for some time. What, what's the recent shift? Well, I see that the taboo on insulting people for their membership in a group has become such that it's not only old words like the N-word and the C-word that are unsayable, you know, in, in polite company or at least very, very powerful, but that even references to someone's membership in a group can be taboo. And, and what really struck me was that recently— Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Opposition Party in Britain's parliament, mouthed the words stupid woman at Theresa May as she was speaking, or appeared to do so. He vociferously denied ever having done so, and there was a huge firestorm over a couple of days, and he said he would never, ever condone misogyny. That was his word. And so he said, no, what I said was stupid people. Then fast forward a bit, and just more recently, Boris Johnson is now prime minister, and while Jeremy Corbyn was speaking— Mr. Johnson sort of seemed to holler at him across the dispatch box, you great big girl's blouse, which is an old-fashioned kind of schoolyard taunt in Britain. Um, Boris Johnson got more coverage for this than almost anything that happened in that day's debate, including letting what I might call the S-word drop in that same speech. Probably the first time the prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland has ever said that word in a parliamentary debate, 
but the coverage was all around you great big girl's blouse. So Boris Johnson can say shit in Parliament, but will still be here saying C-word instead of the C-word. I think his taboo has clearly declined because we've heard it in these public forums, but for the time being, it's still not something we're probably going to say on this podcast. Better safe than sorry. Lane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. As we were publishing the show today, big news from Brussels. It appears that Britain and the European Union have struck a Brexit deal. Could this at last be the divorce arrangement that has eluded the country for three years? We'll be back tomorrow with clear-eyed analysis from our journalists of what to expect next. That's it for now. If you like The Intelligence, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.